Hello, and welcome back to The Corporate Casket, a bi-weekly series where bad businesses go to die. We will discuss any and everything from bad charities, terrible CEOs, and businesses that have a lot to hide. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the Elon School, once located in Poland, Maine. Even though the Elon School has since been closed, I think it's important to recognize that this school existed in the first place and learn from its past mistakes in order to avoid them in the future. Also, a trigger warning here, child abuse will absolutely be talked about in this episode, so if you cannot handle that, I completely understand, and hopefully I will see you in the next one. But without any further ado, let's jump right in and start with how the school was founded. According to a New York Times article, inspired by his own battle with heroin addiction, Mr. Ricci founded Elan in 1970 with the late Dr. Gerald Davidson, primarily as a drug rehabilitation center. Elon's treatment philosophy was based on confrontation. The program used shouting, costumes, and humiliation as tools to make addicts face their problems. Over time, Elon came to accept students with a wide range of behavioral and psychological problems. Disorders former counselors say the facility was ill-equipped to handle. Unfortunately, even schools with the best of intentions can have negative effects on kids if they aren't prepared or equipped to handle those students. But this article continues stating that Elon School did one thing well, it made money. And the school cost $40,000 a year as of 2002 to attend. So the argument that there was any negligence was simply due to being underfunded and understaffed won't really last long here because there's no way you're paying $40,000 a year and still somehow being underfunded. According to another source, Bangor Daily News, the school was seen as a last resort for parents whose severely troubled teens were kicked out of every other school they attended. Though the website doesn't seem to exist anymore, the domain has been replaced and speaks about the abuse instead. Their site used to state the following. The staff specializes in treating troubled youths who exhibit behavior problems in school, refuse to obey authority figures, have difficulty accepting responsibility, have poor self-esteem, and exhibit oppositional behavior such as temper tantrums and mood swings. The school also specializes in treating academic underachievers and teens with mild to moderate learning disabilities. I'd love to see that Mr. Ricci wanted the best for his school when he started it, truly. He at least seemed semi-qualified, founding it with a doctor as opposed to just throwing something together on his own. But unfortunately, it was only five years later in 1975 when things started to go very wrong. The Hartford Current writes, in 1975, the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services investigated allegations of abuse at the school. A number of other states, including Connecticut, followed suit. There is no record that the charges were substantiated, but the state of Illinois stopped sending students to Elan. Ricci went on a public relations blitz, emphasizing that some of the students had sued the state would be returned to Elan. Even if there's no record of what the hell happened back in the early 70s, I'm inclined to believe that there was something nasty going on if Illinois just stopped sending people there. I mean, they wouldn't do that for no reason, right? But this was just the first of many red flags to follow. As for what else happened in 1975, well, I don't blame the school necessarily for this one, but I can't talk about the Elan school without addressing the murder that supposedly took place by one of their students. It's a famous case and how many people have even heard the name of the Elan school in the first place, the Michael Skakel case. In October, 2004, NBC covered this story. 
A new book on convicted killer Michael Skakel said the Kennedy cousin described being covered in blood the night of his neighbor's murder. Skakel, who was convicted in 2002 of Martha Moxley's 1975 murder, allegedly made the incriminating comment to a counselor at Elon School, a reform school in Maine where he was sent in the late 70s. Skakel, like his victim, was 15 at the time of the killing. When I first found this out in my research, I wasn't gonna go into great detail, in part because I really don't want anyone thinking I'm trying to sensationalize a tragedy that barely relates to the topic at hand. However, the more I dug, and after hearing about this incriminating comment, I wanted to look into this just a little bit further. Even if the school wasn't responsible for her death, they were responsible for hiding evidence, so then aren't they complicit? The New York Times timeline I found explains that it was October 30th, 1975, when Martha was found after being brutally murdered. Martha was last seen alive on the lawn of a friend, Thomas Skakel, then 17, a nephew of Ethel Skakel Kennedy, the widow of Robert F. Kennedy. The police traced the golf club used in the killing to the collection of the Skakel family. Thomas and another young man are considered suspects, though both pass lie detector tests. About three years after Martha's murder, Michael Skakel entered the Elan School, and according to numerous accounts, Skakel blurted out during a group therapy session that he had killed Miss Moxley but Joe Ricci, the school's owner, denied that such a confession had occurred. Obviously, Ricci wouldn't want to look like he was ignoring this or covering this up for a crime, so it makes sense that he would deny something like this. And things did go quiet for years, seemingly no one reporting on these confessions. It wasn't until a book written by Mark Furman, a former LA police detective, went public that interest in the case was reignited years after it happened. Not the same book I mentioned earlier, there's multiple books on this topic, we're just not there yet. Anyway, in September, 1998, when Michael was on trial, Joseph Ricci refused to testify. Prosecutors contend that Mr. Ricci overheard Michael Skakel make admissions to the murder of Martha Moxley, according to court papers filed in Maine. Two witnesses who were both former classmates of Mr. Skakel's at the Elon School testify. One of them, John D. Higgins, describes a confused and tearful admission in which Mr. Skakel said he only had fragmented memories of the crime. The other witness, Gregory Coleman, says Mr. Skakel brazenly told him, I am going to get away with murder, I am a Kennedy. After the hearing concluded, Mr. Skakel walked to the railing of the first row of spectators and stood face to face with Miss Moxley's mother, Dorothy. I feel your pain, he said, looking Mrs. Moxley in the eyes, but you've got the wrong guy. It wasn't until 2002 that Skakel was convicted, 27 years after the murder occurred and after a tearful insistence that he was innocent. But that's still not where the story ends. In fact, after an appeal, Skakel got a new trial. The lawyers who appealed Mr. Skakel's conviction maintained that their client had received poor representation. They said that his lawyer had failed to investigate a witness who could have confirmed that Mr. Skakel was far from the Moxley's family home at the time of the murder and that evidence pointed to his older brother, Thomas Skakel, as the possible killer. The case led to years of investigation, Hollywood treatments, and several books. One of them was written by Mr. Skakel's cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., a former prosecutor and environmental lawyer who provided alternate explanations for the killing and detailed what he charged was a flawed police investigation and prosecutorial misconduct. Overturning his conviction was a long, complicated process, but over a decade after Michael was put behind bars, he was released on bail. The case was found to be devoid of any hard evidence linking him to the crime. So it seems like Skakel was wrongfully convicted on those testimonies alone. Again, I'm not trying to bring up this case without reason because the Elan School does seem to play a really small role here and Skakel was released a few years ago. 
but I bring it up at all because it seems to have tainted a ton of people's opinions on the Elan School. And there's still a lot of questions surrounding this case. In October, 2020, the question of retrial even came up. According to ABC, the state Supreme Court reinstated the conviction in a 4-3 ruling in 2016, but the justice who wrote the decision retired soon afterwards and a new justice sided with Skakel in a highly unusual 4-3 opinion in 2018 that overturned the conviction. The US Supreme Court declined to hear the state's appeal last year. This case was even brought up in a 2017 documentary, which frames the situation as the Elan school letting anyone, even murderers, be grouped with addicts. However, later in the documentary, they say that when Skakel was put into a boxing ring, and yes, they had a boxing ring there and beaten up, he was confronted about Martha's murder. Apparently, when in the ring, Skakel denied it again and again. However, after six, seven, eight rounds, that's when he confessed. So as for those many testimonies against him, well, with this context, there's certainly less credibility to them. This is also one of the reasons I wanted to bring up this case because it leaves one of two options for the Elan school. Either they, one, allowed his students to be beaten so badly that he confessed to a murder he didn't commit, or two, Ricci either covered up or ignored a confession of murder from a student that did commit a serious crime. Whether or not you believe Skakel is actually guilty, the school is grossly irresponsible here. However, speaking of that 2017 documentary, that's actually what we're going to be talking about next. I know this came out in 2017, so we're skipping a little bit ahead, but the reason we're jumping to this is because the documentary does a fantastic job at explaining the process of being admitted and what went on at the school from firsthand accounts. So let's get right into that. First of all, this was an amazing documentary and it's included with Amazon Prime. So if you got a couple spare hours, I totally recommend it. But if not, no worries, because I'm going to talk about it right now too. The documentary starts out with introducing a few former residents explaining why they went there. Now, given what I heard, I expected some pretty rough stuff, some really serious crimes. After all, this has been described as a kind of last resort place. And some of it genuinely was. A few kids said they were on crack at age 14. Another said he was shooting up heroin. One said he would steal anything he wanted. One said he had possession to intent and distribute charge at age 15, you name it. So I'm not going to say that these kids did not need help or that they were sent there for no good reason. I have seen that with other schools that I've researched. Cases of kids that are sent to these homes for something as basic as backtalking teachers and those same kids being grouped in with those that committed sexual and criminal offenses. At the very least, I can say that all of these kids, now adults, admit that they needed help. Unfortunately, Elan did not give them the help that they expected. Before we get into the most severe forms of abuse though, we're going to talk about the snatching. According to the Elan medical director, four big strong men hired by Elan come and take away these teenage boys and girls, throw them in a van and drive them to Elan. They don't say too much about where these teens are going, but staff will sometimes have nice photos of the lake and the grounds to make it seem appealing. Some kids even describe it as summer camp paradise by the photos, but hell in reality. So to be honest, I'm a little mixed at this point. I've never heard of Elan really until I started digging into it and I didn't know what to think of the abuse. Then again, I don't know if this would have been a gigantic issue with this whole snatching thing either. I do think that getting these kids and teens, and I'm saying kids because some of them were literally 12, the help they need is crucial. And if it takes a few strong guys and a parent's permission to make sure a 15 year old isn't gonna kill himself, then I I don't know. I, I can't really say like, I guess that that's necessary, but it just doesn't seem like these kids were given much information. Like you have to put yourself in their shoes, honestly. And I'm sorry for going off on a very minor tangent here. 
But this is eerily echoing the Tranquility Bay situation where you would get picked up in the middle of the night or the early hours of the morning and you wouldn't even get to say goodbye to your parents. You're just thrown in the back of a car and just like legally kidnapped essentially. It seems like to me, like if that happened to me, I would mark that as probably a super traumatic experience from my childhood and that would probably mess me up through adulthood. So I don't know how this was supposed to be okay or helpful, but I digress, let's go back. But first from day one, they say came the emotional abuse. Words like your parents don't even want you, you destroyed your family, you're a manipulative piece of shit, you name it. The former student said that anyone who made a mistake was put to the front of the classroom and the rest of the class just bum rushed them, degraded them and humiliated them. Which this just doesn't seem like a healthy way to talk to someone. But what I found especially interesting was that this documentary didn't just want to detail these former student stories, but to pose the question, why is breaking addicts so often seen as the way to fix them? It started with the severe drug problems of the 60s when Diedrich, a frequent speaker at Alcoholics Anonymous, founded Synanon, a drug rehabilitation center. Synanon disbanded in 1991 due to members being convicted of criminal activities, including attempted murder, but that's literally an episode for a different day. We will be talking about Synanon in the near future. But this will give us some insight into Elon for looking into places such as Synanon because Synanon called the game, which we now know as attack therapy. As for if it works, well, sort of. You might not be addicted to drugs anymore with attack therapy, but you'll feel miserable and ashamed too. According to one source, because these treatments vary so widely in practice and application, it's difficult to say whether they do or don't work. However, some statistics suggest there are better ways to reach those in treatment. First, a look at the efficacy of scared straight programs with at-risk youths, like those depicted in Beyond Scared Straight. According to a few studies, scared straight programs are actually encouraged participants to become future offenders at an average of 13%. There's less information about attack therapy, but it's logical to believe that any benefits would be accompanied by massive downsides. These confrontational treatments affect a person's self-esteem, so it could be helpful for patients with high self-esteem because it could show them the error in their ways without causing additional psychological damage. In patients with low self-worth, on the other hand, attack therapy and similar treatments have the potential to cause lasting damage. And attack therapy sounds, I mean, after this, it sounds horrific. sounds like something you never wanna be a part of. But Ilan wasn't just using attack therapy on anyone. They were using it on kids. Kids that had been consistently sexually abused with psychological issues. Kids that dealt with sexual, physical, and emotional abuse. They didn't need any more of that thrown at them. One woman even says that when she arrived, a counselor stood up, called her out, and asked the class, did you know that before she came to Elan, she had been diagnosed as semi-autistic? Which, first of all, that's fucked up that this counselor would just share that with her entire class. But secondly, some of these former students actually disagree with my sources. And also, how the fuck do you just say like, oh yeah, you've been diagnosed as semi-autistic? Like, what the fuck is that? Is that even a medical term? I don't think I've heard that. If it is, I, I stand corrected, but I have never heard that used as a medical term in the research that I've looked at. So I thought I could give Elon some credit for taking in kids and teens that were truly at risk, but one woman claims that there were kids at Elon that were there for talking to boys. Yep, girls that came from religious families were sent to Elon if they were hanging out with boys at a young age. It was this wallet biopsy, they say. If you had enough money, then the kid's problem was severe enough to send them there. In the mid seventies, the troubled teen industry, as the documentary puts it, was growing. Ricci was expanding. He even ran for governor, but failed. And Ilan had become a money machine. 
As former students said, it was ingenious to have the prisoners run the prison. It was like Lord of the Flies, they said, because everyone wanted to get out. So the only way to do that was to play along. And in doing so, they could, as one man put it, shut off their human convictions. I'm not against programs that make teenagers clean up their act or anything, but I don't want anyone walking away from this saying that I'm completely against punishment or having kids taught to be accountable. Kids that were there longer were expediters, the cops of the house that would guard the newer kids and keep track of them. Some called them spies, and some weren't sure of knowing who ran away or who did what or who was monitoring outgoing mail, incoming mail, reading it, writing down everything other students did. And eventually these kids became the directors. These directors, the documentary said, had no qualifications, no psych training, nothing. Even if experience is a great teacher, it should not be the only teacher, not in a medical setting. They thought that because a student had been through the program, this qualified them to handle other students as a director. So it became a cycle of abuse that essentially no one understood how to break. Instead, it only got worse and worse and worse. I really wanted to believe that it wasn't as bad as the students were saying. Maybe they're just remembering the worst of it, but an actual recording shown 39 minutes into this documentary is intense. And I mean, this is some real intense stuff. The screaming, the yelling, the cursing, that was how they were dealt with and how they yelled at each other. It's, it just doesn't even seem real. But Again, to this documentary's credit, they explained that there was a benefit to this presenting the other side of this argument. One former student admits that in other groups and homes he'd been in, there wasn't anything like that. And instead kids would beat one another up when they felt angry. This primal scream as they called it was a way of releasing their feelings. And as for students trying to escape, again, the documentary explains that sure, a kid being made to wear a bunny suit and leg shackles may not be pleasant, but he isn't running away anytime soon. And if it wasn't Ilan, he'd be in prison for assault. So I, I'm i trying to see the validity of the punishment, but I'm still failing to understand how putting a kid in a bunny suit and shackling them is really helping. Like maybe it's just me, but I'm just struggling to find how that's okay. But it doesn't end there. They say if a girl held hands with a boy breaking a rule, they had to wear a sign that says, ask me why I'm a whore. Or one young woman who had syphilis was made to wear tampons in her hair. A lot of kids admitted that they were out of control and probably needed some really harsh discipline. But in so many cases, it just didn't fit the crime or it crossed the line from consequence to abuse. One kid suggested that they get a house dog. So he was made to be the house dog. He could only bark, wasn't allowed to speak and had to do tricks for food. One young woman had a nervous breakdown and urinated on herself during one of these general meetings where she was being shouted at. Rather than realize that things were too serious to get an adult or a psychiatrist, she was just given a cold shower, still in her clothes, dragged out, shouted at again, then given a spanking, all in her wet clothing. The lack of regulation was just insane because of this cycle and the lack of professionals involved at every stage of this supposed program. And it's time to take a quick break and thank today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. Now, most of us are still stuck at home unless apparently you live in New Zealand, which you lucky few, I am extremely jealous right now. But for the rest of the world, essentially, we're pretty much under lockdown and gotta wear masks when we go out in public and are really encouraged to just not go out. So what do we do with our free time? Obviously, a lot of us, myself included, are watching TV shows, movies, documentaries, whatever we can really get our hands on to just help time go by a little bit faster. And you know what sucks? 
it sucks when you find out you pay for a service and they're not actually allowing you to see all the shows that you could. So that's why you can use ExpressVPN to go ahead and unlock those shows, movies, documentaries that are in other countries that you can't see in your country. What you might not know is that what's on Netflix in your country is completely different than what someone else in the UK or Japan, for example, has on theirs. When you use ExpressVPN, you can control what country Netflix thinks you're in and get access to all those shows and programs that you might not know about if you just watch the one that's available in your country alone. So if you wanna get started today and get caught up on anything you could be potentially missing on Netflix, BBC iPlayer, whatever it is, make sure you go to expressvpn.com casket. Don't forget to use my link so you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com casket. So let's get smart in 2021 and stop paying full price for streaming services that don't give us the whole package. Make sure to go to expressvpn.com casket to learn more. Thank you ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's corporate casket. Now that we know about what was going on behind closed doors, we're going to talk about what was happening to Ricci, the founder, and the rumors starting to take off about his school. One source claims, in 1979, a district in Massachusetts was the first to ban sending children to a lawn, citing the abusive and cruel treatment that the school used. In Illinois, state officials pulled a teen out of Elon in response to the allegations of maltreatment and cautioned parents about sending their children there. There were also individuals in Maine who did their part to help save children from the abuse, sometimes even going against orders to do what they knew to be right. One 16-year-old boy who escaped from Elon in 1979 was discovered by a police officer hiding at a nearby apartment complex. The boy had managed to escape the school in the middle of the night, elude the school's search parties called posses, and run more than 15 miles through the wilderness until he reached civilization. The officer on the scene, Lieutenant Max Ashburn, knew that he was supposed to return the teen back to Elon, but seeing the bruises on the boy's body and seeing the fear in the teen's eyes, he ultimately decided to go against orders. Ashburn drove the boy to a truck stop in Ashburn, Maine, where he could hitchhike back home and let him go. The Current Times said that in 1996, Joseph Ricci lost a sexual harassment lawsuit filed by a female employee. That's it. I wish I could give you details, but I honestly don't see any between any of my sources. It seems like it's all been buried or sealed. But as horrible as that is, it's hardly the only thing that's happening either. Their article in 2000 said this, Ricci's success with the school allowed him in 1979 to purchase Scarborough Downs. Since that time, he has waged a public battle with Maine gaming officials and Governor Angus King over what he calls their practice of clamping down on private gambling while promoting state-sponsored lottery games. Most recently, Ricci has been tangling with the US Postal Service. Ricci sued the agency, accusing it of engaging in a sweetheart deal with Julian R. Coles, chairman of the Maine Turnpike Authority. Ricci, who wanted a new mail distribution center located on his property, believes that federal officials worked a backroom deal to put the center on a site near property owned by Coles. The suit also alleged that a local mail service manager implied Ricci had links to organized crime. I'm tired of being called a killer, Ricci said. While some had some pretty nasty things to say about Ricci, others say Joseph Ricci simply had become greedy with all these lawsuits. One 1987 article said the following. When his bank cut off his credit five years ago, Joseph J. Ricci, a New York street kid who moved to Maine and became a millionaire businessman, got mad. 
Last week, he got even. A U.S. District Court jury returned a $15 million judgment in his favor against KeyBank for breach of contract, defamation, and emotional distress. It was the largest civil award in Maine's history, capping a seven-week trial laced with testimony about cocaine use, rumored mafia connections, loose-tongued FBI agents, and high-stakes bank mergers. The jury agreed with arguments by Ricci and his business partner, Massachusetts psychiatrist Gerald E. Davidson, that the bank had severed their $1 million credit line on the basis of erroneous reports that Ricci was linked to organized crime. The bank maintained that it acted prudently after it received derogatory information about Ricci from FBI agents and a state investigator. A 40-year-old Ricci insisted from the onset that he had not filed his $41 million lawsuit for monetary gain. He said he fought to restore his reputation and to force bankers everywhere to think twice before violating the civil rights of other customers. And I mean, I can't blame someone for wanting to uphold their reputation. The bank was cutting off his line of credit without reason, so fine, he had every right to be upset. Apparently they confused Joseph Ricci with another man in another state with mafia ties and mistook him for someone else, according to the article. But all his money, all his power, the former students say it was all going to his head and standards for the school fell to the wayside. And unfortunately, the abuse we've covered isn't even the worst of it yet. There's one more aspect we need to mention that I touched upon briefly, the same abuse that supposedly made Skakel confess, the ring. Now, the ring is exactly like it sounds, a boxing ring. Tatiana Karam, 21, who attended Ilan from 1996 to 1998, said she witnessed three or four boxing sessions or rings as they are known, and said she saw a student placed in the corner in plastic restraints for so long that she became malnourished and was sent to the hospital. Ms. Karam said that the phone calls to her parents who spent more than $100,000 on her schooling were monitored and that the students who accurately described life at Ilan were punished for being manipulative. The documentary said that when students were placed in the ring, it was supposed to teach them that there was no point in violence because even if someone fought back, another student would come and beat them up. More people would join in. Anyone that showed violence was met with violence to the point of serious bloody beatings. Personally, I think this lesson's bullshit. How can you teach someone that violence is pointless, but then use violence in an attempt to teach them? That's literally like fighting fire with fire. But we're not talking a few bruises either. When I say these students were beaten, there's even some belief that one student, Phil Williams Jr., died from a beating in the ring. An archived article from Sun Journal reads, by 1982, Phil had grown into a slight teenager with wild curly hair and an easy, sweet dimpled grin that drew people in. He was beautiful, said Pam Newell, his sister. All the girls liked him. And I remember I used to get mad because that was my brother and I didn't want any girls around him. We were close, we were really close. But Phil was also angry. He'd launch into fits of rage, banging his head on the walls, once swinging his foster brother around by the ankles into a couch, seemingly triggered by intense migraines. The 15 year old was sent to the main youth center, then the Elan school in Poland to cool off. Noel would never see her brother alive again. We were told Elon was a step up from the youth center because he got transferred and that he was doing well and that everything was going good and that he was going to come home, Newell said. He came home in a box. On the day of the funeral, it took both Newell's foster father and her father released from prison for the day to hold her back from climbing into Phil's coffin. Wherever he was going, she wanted to be with him badly. Newell, 12 at the time, was told her brother's brain had an aneurysm and that it exploded literally inside his head. For 33 years, that's what she believed. Then last month, Mark Babbitts showed up. 
Babbitts, 56, lives outside of Chicago, owns a construction company, and says he worked as a bounty hunter for 30 years. He also went to Elon. Two weeks ago, he tracked down Newell and put her on the phone with a witness who said Phil didn't just collapse one day as the family had been told. He'd been forced into Elon's infamous boxing ring and beaten by other teenagers because he complained of a headache. The witnesses saw Phil collapse, spasm, and then turn blue. Eventually, staff took him away. He was dead within a day. The Sun Journal spoke with that witness and one another. Although some details differ, their stories are essentially the same. Newell and Babbitts are now on a campaign to have police open an investigation into the events around Phil's death. Right now, I have every emotion you could possibly feel at once, said Newell, 45, now living in Lewiston. I'm angry, I'm sad. I feel a little bit of relief because I'm going through this and I'm going to be his voice. It's the only voice my brother has. The Seattle Times also covered this story and it reads all the same. Every source begs the same question that I found myself asking after each step of the way through this research. Where the fuck were the adults? I really try to enter every topic with an open mind and to some extent to get why directors at Elon would have teens running the kitchen or various parts of the school to teach them responsibility and accountability. Like that makes sense. But these teens, these angry kids that needed help are running entire fucking programs. Not once, not once so far and not once in the entire documentary did I hear about a breakthrough in individual therapy. There was a mention of one director who helped run the school and tried to make a difference for these kids. One, just the one. And I think they're the only adult mentioned in the whole thing aside from Ricci. So the fact that a child may have died in this ring because it was being run by furious teenagers, that doesn't surprise me. It's horrific, it's tragic. And I think the school should have been shut down that very second and taken a good long look at themselves, but no. I will say that there was insufficient evidence to warrant a prosecution here. So no one has been charged and the likelihood of someone being charged in the future is slim to none. But hell, freak accident, medical emergency or otherwise, the fact that this kid was beaten in a boxing ring at all and the last moments he may remember are stepping out of that ring is pretty despicable if you ask me. For fuck's sake, he was only 15. Troubled, at risk, no matter what you wanna call it or what other terminology gets used, no one should have been beating him. Thankfully, Elon did get shut down. And I say thankfully, not just because of the abuse, but because it really hurts as much as, if not more than the hurt. One man, Peter, says by the time he was 36 years old, he was shooting up heroin because he couldn't deal with the emotion anymore, even after he tried to have a normal life with his wife and kids. Another woman says when she left Elon, it made her feel pretty horrible about herself and she turned to drugs again to deal with that. Another says she wakes up with night terrors. And yet another woman says she can't even go to the grocery store without being afraid and crowds give her so much anxiety. She didn't know what a panic attack was until she got to Elon. Ask Reddit threads are actually largely to thank for Elon shutting down because of all that bad press they got. Reddit AMAs cropped up about survivors wanting to tell their story and more and more stories like these began spreading. The thing is what I find both interesting and pathetic is the state of Maine where the Elon school was located always announced when it was going to check on the Elon School for problems. And sure enough, they never found any. But the states that didn't announce themselves, like New York, were the ones that saw threats and stopped sending children there. One HuffPost article about what they found read, according to a letter from New York to Elon released to me today by NYSED, the compliance issues include students restraining other students, excessive use of isolation as punishment, sleep deprivation, and students counseling other students and using coercive and confrontational language, which includes yelling and swearing. The letter also notes that Elon isn't providing the required number of hours of classroom instruction for New York students and that students are not qualified as counselors. 
In other words, just as former students have claimed for decades, Elan uses abusive, degrading, and violent tactics that have been long discredited as therapy, even for hardcore heroin addicts, to which they were originally applied and have no place in the education of the learning disabled or mentally ill or anyone else for that matter. However, it wasn't laws or state regulation that shut down the Elan school. Instead, it was the now deleted Reddit user, Jizaz my hero and former fellow students. It was all the people Elan hurt speaking up years later online and telling their stories. So as toxic as cancel culture may be here, it was for the best. It was more effective to take Elan down via its wallet, ruining its reputation, than wait for someone to get severely hurt again. The students shut them down, which frankly is some fantastic poetic justice. Now, before I end today's episode, I'm going to leave you guys with some words from Maya Slavitz, a reporter and author featured in this documentary because I feel like she sums up the situation better than I could. There is absolutely no evidence that this does anything other than produce PTSD, depression, and in some cases, a brief period of compliance. A lot of people will say it worked for me. I can't say the 12-step program saved my life because that's what happened to help when I ended up getting into recovery. I mean, I can say that, but the reality is I don't know that. It's an anecdote. And even if my anecdote, and I believe it very strongly, it's still an anecdote. And if we're going to say that addiction and mental illness are diseases, then we have to have medical standards of evidence. And by the medical standards of evidence, there is no data to suggest that this, Elon's methods, helps people, and there are lots of things suggesting it does harm. The reason these places caught on with a lot of parents is a lot of parents wanted to avoid psychiatric labels and wanted to avoid medications. They figured if I send my place to a bad kids, it's better than sending them to a bad place for sick kids. And they didn't realize how weird that actually is. These places sort of show that there's still an enormous stigma on mental illnesses. There's always been this sort of threat since Sparta and we can't make tough people by putting them through tough things, but that doesn't mean that we should traumatize them. And so with that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I can't say that I hope you enjoyed it, but I do hope that you learned something. And if you did, make sure that you are subscribed or following so that you can stay up to date on new weekly episodes every single week. Thank you again for making it to another episode of The Corporate Casket, and I'll see you in the next one. 